Welcome to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we expand the conversation on the critical civil and human rights challenges of our day. I'm your host, Ashley Allison, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And like we start off every show, everybody say hello to the Pod Squad, where we discuss pop culture and social justice topics while incorporating our issues into the conversation. Today, I have three amazing guests, Emily Racinos, rising senior at NYU, majoring in international relations and minoring in peace and conflict studies, but also an intern at the Leadership Conference. Maria Town, president and CEO of American Association of People with Disabilities, and Mia Ives Rubley, founder and coordinator of the Disability Caucus for the Women's March on Washington. Today we're talking about accessibility, people with disabilities, and the intersection of disability and civil rights. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Now, we started off with Lizzo's Truth Hurts, and so I just had to be truthful. Today, I'm actually joined by two guests remotely because actually the place where we record is not accessible. And so, ladies, I actually like to apologize for not being able to have you in studio. And the truth is, we're a civil rights organization. People work for justice. We need to do better and make sure that we're using places and we're um, welcoming everyone to places that they can fully live in their full dignity because that's what we are all about. So thank you for still joining us. We really appreciate it. Now, talking about being able to live in your full dignity, the man in the White House, Trump, called out four women of color in Congress talking about go back where you came from. Mia, I'm going to come to you. Thoughts, reactions, were you surprised? No, of course I'm not surprised. You know, growing up as an Asian American, growing up as an immigrant myself, I heard it all the time. If I made any criticism or anything like that, I would be told, why don't you go back to your country? And, you know, the funny thing is, is that I didn't choose to come to this country. I was brought here because I was adopted. It doesn't even matter how many generations your family has been here. If you came here by choice or by circumstances, by force, you know, you still get that comment and it's totally related to your race. You don't hear a bunch of white people who are immigrants being told that all the time. It's usually people of color. Yeah. Maria, what do you think about this? The squad, they're Americans. And whether they immigrated here or were born here, it doesn't make a difference. It does matter. The other thing that the president is adding to all of his critiques of these powerhouse women is that they're negative and they're critical. And part of what I think it actually means to be an American is to believe in something better and to believe that we can actually get there. And part of that belief, part of actualizing it is actually being critical because you care about this country and the people in it. Yeah. Yeah. Emily, thoughts? Well, as the daughter of Salvadoran immigrants who actually came to this country during the time of El Salvador's civil war, these types of comments just like enraged me Mm -hmm. because I know what my parents went through to come to this country and it wasn't a choice for them. It was a matter of I need to go because it's not safe here. And so I think that unfortunately people like our president do not understand that This is a reality for many people. Violence is a reality. And that's what people are coming here. And we should be welcoming them and giving them all the opportunities that we have. 
Not to mention, this is a country of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Let's just be real. This country belongs to the indigenous people of this land, and they ain't white. And then this country was built by slaves, and they wasn't white. And then this country was flooded with immigrants through the Statue of Liberty, through Ellis Island. It's a country of immigrants. And to say, go back where you came from, there's one group of people that actually are originally from here. I used to hear that all the time, go back to Africa or whatever. And I used to say, gladly, send me back because... I like to go back to the motherland. So, actually, speaking of Africa, the Lion King. Okay, so I said when Okay, so <laughs> all right, couple of things. Beyonce, Nala. I haven't seen it. Anyone seen it yet? No, no. I wish I had. I just want to talk about the soundtrack. So everybody, when you're growing, you know, I started singing Circle of Life, Hakuna Matata, but my girl B. Mm. She put a whole separate soundtrack out for The Lion King, just like because she can. I mean, have you all heard any of the music, Spirited or the video? And she's got Blue Ivy all up in it. What do you think? (laughs) I think it's beautiful. Last week was hard and like Spirit and the extended cut Spirit and Bigger got me through last week. Yes. So I just think it's amazing. And then the whole album, like I think it's Mood Forever, Forever Mood is also great. Anyway, y'all should give it a listen. Yeah, so I have it on repeat right now. And then I'm the type of girl when I see a video and they're dancing, like I have to learn the choreography. <laughs> so I've been in my apartment like doing the little moves that they do in the different multicolored clothes. So yeah, and then also Beyonce made big news because royalty meets royalty. Did y'all see those photos or hear about the photos? Oh my goodness. Mia, what do you think about Marco and Beyonce? You know, I think discounting all the political shenanigans and the racial tensions that continue to rise in this country, seeing representation at the highest levels, you know, doing their thing, it's wonderful to see. Yeah. What about you all, Maria, Emily? Well, first, both of them looked amazing. Like, you're looking at the pictures because Beyonce is hugging an actual princess, but you're also just like, (laughs) Wow. But she's queen, um, you know. <laughs> exactly. Like Queen Bee, you know, meet the princess. One of the comments I saw online a bunch was like, oh my gosh, Beyonce and Jay-Z have a bigger entourage security detail than Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And I thought that was interesting. I just moved back to D.C. from Houston. And there were times when people would be like, why haven't y'all consulted Beyonce on some city issues? <laughs> She just has such power. And I think with like spirit and the whole album knows how to use it in a way that is true to her and that everybody was like honored in that moment. So it was amazing. Also, because Megan has been, I feel like, such a instrumental like part of maybe changing the conversation about race in Britain and Mm -hmm. maybe expanding that conversation. I think it's beautiful to see both these incredible women together. Yeah. Okay. so. The Russians. (laughs) The Russians got us again. So there's this app that recently came out about... This is the problem sometimes with people. I don't know why you want to see yourself older. Just be present in the moment. But (laughs) we all needed to see ourselves. And now the Russians have all of our faces. So the app, basically, you put a picture up and then it can make you look extremely young, which I will say... The accuracy of that photo was more spot on than the racist way they put my face together. They made me look. I know what I'm going to look like when I'm older because my grandma's skin didn't crack because black don't crack. And they made me look like 
the bottom of an elephant foot, basically. <laughs> it was like the worst picture I've ever seen. So I didn't post it on social media, <laughs> but it was all employed by the Russians to get our faces. Did any of y'all do it? No. No. <laughs> well, no. you're smarter than me. The Russians don't have you that way. <laughs> no, I think that understanding how much tech has on our identities, whether it's facial recognition, etc. Like even in the United States, not speaking about like Russia and the things that they deploy in terms of security, but like even the United States and how right now Amazon has contracts with police agencies and with ICE and CPB and that they're deploying that against people of color and people with disabilities. Like there was a comment out there from talk about the federal government using it to spy on people with disabilities who receive SSI and SSDI to prove that they weren't disabled. So like I'm actually more worried about what Amazon and Facebook are doing than this whole Russia Thing. I mean, that's bad in itself, but like, what can the federal government do using Facebook, using Amazon, using these contracts to really attack people of color and disabled people of color? So when I heard about that, like that the federal government was going to be spying on people with disabilities to see if you actually had a disability and determining whether like you actually needed SSI or not, I just was extremely disappointed because I feel like, unfortunately, if you don't seem like you have a severe disability, people might assume like you don't need assistance, you don't need this. And who's to tell me what I need and don't need? You don't know. You don't have my disability. Yeah. I know, Maria, you do a lot of work advocating for the disability community. How prevalent is something like this on a day-to-day basis? People wanting to challenge how folks identify with their disability. I think it's very prevalent. The fright around disability benefit abuse is much greater than actual instances of benefit fraud. And what I don't think people understand is like the experience of becoming eligible for something like SSI, Supplemental Security Income, is not a good one. It's very belittling. It is laborious. Like if you ever want to experience a bureaucracy in full force, go apply for SSI. That is not something people want to subject themselves to. And so whenever people talk to me about fraud, it's just like, what don't you understand? As somebody who was on SSI for a very long time, the money that I received like helped me get access to different therapies. It helped me get access to a hospital bed when I had surgery, but it also like helped my family survive because the issues weren't just with me as a person with a disability, but, you know, my single mom who was putting herself through nursing school while raising three children with disabilities. And so, you know, one of the things that I want to see happen is that people who receive benefits can be open about their experiences without fear of either government or community retribution. Because if you're somebody who is like grown up poor and had to get that free lunch or that government cheese, Sometimes there's a lot of shame around that and there shouldn't be, you know, you're doing what you need to survive. And we shouldn't have people be fearful of like what they post online because they're afraid that those benefits will be taken away. And the other thing you said, Ashley, you know, you're right that technology could be used to produce so much good, but I'll be real. I'm a little, I shouldn't say this, I'm a lot jaded because so much technology that's created on a daily basis is just created in an inaccessible way. Not only are we trying to take down barriers in the physical environment, but one of the things that came out recently was that none of the Democratic presidential hopefuls had websites who were accessible to people who are blind or have low vision. 
And it's like, come on, folks, it's 2019. One in every four adults have a disability. And a new report just came out showing what a significant voting block people with disabilities are, a report from Rutgers. And yet your websites aren't even accessible. Do better. It's like, do you even want to engage with me? Today, I have Emily Racinos, the rising senior at NYU and intern at the Leadership Conference, Maria Town, president and CEO of AAPD, American Association of People with Disabilities, and Mia Ives-Rubley, founder and coordinator of the Disability Caucus and the Women's March on Washington. I want to talk about something else. So recently, the House passed increasing the minimum wage to 15, but an issue also that is real to the disability community is the sub-minimum wage. And that's when people with disability basically do the same work as other people, but get paid less. Why do you feel like, and it's not an issue that is talked about a lot, but why do you feel like people don't know about this or don't fight for it and don't try and increase it? Why don't we go to you first, Emily? I just think that unfortunately, disability issues are not often brought up in the media. Like they never receive attention or the retention that they deserve. And I think that's why most people don't know that the disability community is facing these issues and that this is going on. Also, because there's such a like stigmatization of having disability, I think this also like prevents people from talking about these issues and basically seeing that these are like legitimate concerns. Yeah. 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 Mia, what do you think about this? Why don't you think it's more prominent? You know, I think a lot of people have this misconception that disabled people can't work. So they feel like any type of activity or workplace an individual gets is sort of a gift to them. You saw it in a post from Goodwill who said that these aren't jobs that these individuals are doing. Menial tasks, you're stuffing envelopes for hours, you're counting nails, you're doing these very menial, very repetitive jobs often. And a lot of people see them as just not full humans and not requiring the same respect that people without disabilities get. And so they see it as sort of a charity. That mindset allows people to feel like it's okay if we're not paying them full time. It's okay because, you know, we have to pay these other people who have to train them or these individuals aren't doing as much work as these other individuals without disabilities. And I just want to call BS on that. I worked for Division of Vocational Rehabilitation for six years, working with individuals with disabilities, helping them find employment. And I've seen what happens when you integrate people into workplaces and how valued they feel and how much they contribute to that workplace. So I call BS on it. Thanks again to Emily, Maria, and Mia for joining us on the Pod Squad. Coming up, we have a very special guest, Valissa Thompson. So don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Pod for the Cause. Today we are talking about accessibility, people with disabilities, and the intersections of disability and civil rights. We have a special guest with us today, Valissa Thompson, creator of Hashtag Disability Too White and founder of Ramp Your Voice. Welcome to the show, Valissa. Hi. How you doing? Nice to be on. Doing good. Yeah, yeah. It's hot out here in this summer weather, but we all survive it. <laughs> so 
look, let's just jump right into it. Hashtag disability too white. You started it. Why do we need to know that disability is too white? Well, I started it three years ago as a reaction to an Exo James article about disability beauty. And it featured the perspectives of white disabled women. They have imagery of white disabled women and the article. And I stumbled upon the conversation happening about it and that exclusionary factor and the hashtag just came to mind during the conversation and it just took off over the next 24, 48 hours and went viral, disabled people of color, talking about the erasure of Mm -hmm. us when it comes to certain topics and the harm of that. And disabled white people brought up how, and though they even witnessed that and how troubling it is. And also, of course, when you talk about disabled race, disabled and non-disabled white folks got in their feelings and were upset about bringing up race in general. So it had a polarizing effect of sorts when it comes to the conversation and revealing the truth that we always talk about privately, but making a public conversation. Even three years later, the hashtag is still being used for certain matters come up that either exclusionary or a prime example of whiteness being pervasive when it comes to the disabled narrative or mm-hmm. white leadership being problematic. I think it really synthesized you know, how people are feeling. And it was just very catchy. You know, it's kind of in your face. Type it is of in phrasing. your face. <laughs> <laughs> and it just took a life of its own. But I am very proud of the impact that it's had on the community. It's been featured within academia. It has been a part of the panel discussions that I've been on and outside of my work. So it has really been a marker of hashtag by the community. I mean, I will say when I first stumbled on it a couple of years ago, I thought I said, of course, it's too white because most of the conversations that we still have in this country are rooted through the lens of whiteness. And so it was so timely and important to interject this into the conversation. But as you mentioned, you know, sometimes that's a hard thing for people who are white to hear. And I'm wondering what backlash, if any, have you gotten in the disability community? And if folks have really come up, either a person with a disability or without a disability, if folks have been coming to your defense to say, no, this is an important conversation to have. I think when you talk about race and forcing white people to recognize their privilege and the either intentional or unintentional harm that they cause, there's going to be backlash from them. Because holding that mirror up is not something they want to see themselves in. So when the hashtag went viral and when I did get the backlash, I'm particularly being called the N-word online. Yeah, it was pretty intense when it went viral. You know, people did come to my defense. But, you know, as a Black woman, a Black woman who's vocal, we should never be surprised at the backlash that we receive when it comes to race. And that's very upsetting and saddening to say, but it's reality when you're Black and vocal and a woman or femi. That's what happens. There has been more greater support than hate for it. Yeah. I think that those who do hate the hashtag or have a problem with it, you know, that's a personal problem because it's probably getting them to see the role that they have played in the perpetuation of racism, either being complicit in it or being an active perpetuator. So I think that people have a problem with the hashtag and it's something that they need to be held accountable for. I think that the hashtag has allowed particularly white disabled folks to really have something to call it when they see those issues come up, mm-hmm. when they see a racist in that community come up. And I think that's very important because we do have a lot of racists within the disability community. A lot of our leadership are white, male, and disabled. And a good many of them are problematic. 
So I think that the hashtag really allowed the floodgates of sorts to really be open to have these honest discussions about who is really a co-conspirator or accomplice in our community versus someone who's a part of the good old boys club, someone who wants to retain the status quo for their benefit and for the benefit of those that look like them. For me, the hashtag was a much needed conversation and propeller to kind of clean house and to really force ourselves, particularly in this space, to figure out who is with us and who is against us. That's right. I say smoke them out. Let them know. That's a racism problem. (laughs) Yeah. Very stark one. So you are pretty busy. You have the hashtag disability to white and you also are the founder of Ramp Your Voice. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that effort is about and how and if they can get involved in it? I actually created Ramp Your Voice to be six years on July 19th as a way to allow myself to have a space as a Black disabled woman who's also a social worker. Before I created Rapid Voice in 2013, I was blogging as a social worker about the disabled experience since no one was really doing that extensively at that time. And no one really is still (laughs) in some ways. And I wanted to be able to merge the identities in a more fluid way. So Rapid Voice was my way of talking about the issues that matter to me in a very unrestricted environment, touching on issues such as sexuality, race, politics, education, mm-hmm. you know, those are the things that matter to me and has allowed me to be seen as a voice who can tackle different topics effortlessly and intertwine the intersectionality piece of that. Because at that time, there weren't many Black disabled women and families talking about disability. Many of us came on the scene around that same time, 2013, 2014. Yeah. So we kind of grew up together, you know, as peers, filling in a gap that we all saw with our voices and our perspectives that community needs. So I want to talk about intersectionality because Kimberly Crenshaw, the fabulous, brilliant Kimberly Crenshaw, really inserted that word into the conversation to talk about Black women. So it is so refreshing. It's a word that the movement uses a lot. It's kind of been appropriated by all people, which whatever, to each his own, but it really was started about the intersectionality of Black women. So I love the fact that you're a Black woman being able to use it. And so for you, what does intersectionality mean in regards to the work that you're doing? I always say that the way I navigate the world, I cannot tell if someone's being hateful, discriminatory towards me because of my gender, my race, and my disability. Because sometimes they all can be affecting me at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I don't have time to really try to figure out which one is the root cause of an unpleasant or offensive experience. So I think that an issue that I have within both Black spaces and disability spaces is that people want you to fragment yourself. You know, if you want to talk about these issues, and I'm like, I'm just as Black as I am a woman, and I am a woman just as I am disabled. And if I'm going to be in your space and we see all of me, instead of seeing the part of me that is similar to you. And for me, intersectionality gives me the ability to speak about my truth unapologetically and to have it respected within the spaces that I am a part of, within the communities I am a part of, Mm -hmm. and to not allow people to segment me and only look at the parts that make them feel warm and fuzzy and overlook the parts that they may not know how to address or they don't want to address. So you live in South Carolina and there's a couple people coming through South Carolina recently because something is coming up in 2020 
like a primary and an election. And so I'm interested for you as a voter with different issues that are important to you based on just the work that you do, but also just as an individual. What do you feel like the candidates, particularly on the Democratic side that are battling it out right now, need to be thinking about to get your vote? But right now, I'm not picking anybody because mm-hmm. I feel like there are too many people to pick. Me, me too, girl. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but I am paying keen attention to the candidates who are talking about issues specific to women of color. Mm-hmm. And also, I am very looking forward to those same candidates to bring disability into that matter because disability issues are a part of the political scene and need to be integrated into every social issue because mm-hmm. disability is within every social issue and to integrate it and not just fragment it at times. I think there is one particular candidate as of right now who is making a step to really engage Black women. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw their efforts at the recent Netroots, I wasn't there at Netroots, but I know of the Black women and families that were of this meeting with Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. uh, that was a candidate, and really was very impressed by the reactions that some of those women that I respect had through her engagement with them at that meeting. And, you know, Elizabeth is in some ways leading the pack and talking about issues that pertain to Black women and women of color. Mm-hmm. And I wish that others would take her lead. Again, I'm not endorsing anybody, but I am paying a keen attention. And Elizabeth is someone who has gotten my attention because of the efforts that she is making. There is plenty of time between now and the South Carolina primary and then the general election next November. So Mm -hmm. anything can happen. But I think we do need to hold these candidates, regardless of who they are, accountable of the issues that bring to the table. Not just talking points, but actually bringing feasible policies. Because that's what I'm looking for at this point, someone who has policies. I don't want you to just talk about eliminating student debt. I want you to have a feasible plan out there. I don't want you to just talk about the mortality rate of Black women, families when it comes to childbirth. I want you to have a plan on how you're going to increase health care for us. I want you to have a plan. And when it comes to disability, I want you to have a plan on ending the subminimum wage, mm-hmm. which allows to say with people to be paid below, below the, yeah, uh, much federal, federal it's like $2 um, and 12 cents or something crazy like that. Yeah. Ending the 14C certificates that allows that. I want you to have a plan on that issue yep. because that's an employment issue that gets swept in the road because it's a disability issue. So I really want candidates to integrate disability policies within their framework and also target within those same framework disability issues that matter to us that we are looking for you to discuss. So the candidates still have a lot of work to address the issues that matter to me within the identities that I have. All right. So we're coming up on our last question. And I've been doing this little thing. So I'm going to ask you to say one word. I'm going to ask you a question and I want you to give me a one word (laughs) response. When you think about what the disability community needs to do in this moment that we are in in our country, what is one word you would say is a like charge to them? Call out. Call um, out. Okay, call, call out. out. We didn't call some, a lot of people out, but <laughs> that's yes, for another yes. show. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. I have Alyssa, the creator of Hashtag Disability, Too White, and the founder of Ramp Your Voice. Coming up, I'll hit you with some real talk during our hot take segment, where I get a few things off my chest in three got, minutes got, or less. I got, I got loyalty, got royalty inside my DNA. Peace got war and peace inside my DNA. I got power, poison, pain, and joy.
joy inside my DNA. I got hustle, though ambition flow inside my DNA. I was born like this, and born like this. Immaculate conception, I transform like this, perform like this. What shells you a new weapon? I don't contemplate, I meditate, then off your head. This that puts the kiss to bed. This that I got, I got, I got, I got. Welcome back to Pod for the Cause, where we've been talking about accessibility, people with disabilities, and the intersection of disability and civil rights. And between our pod squad and Valissa Thompson, I have a few things to say. You know, when I started my college years, my father started to lose his vision. And we didn't really know what was happening. We didn't know why he was losing his vision, but it just started to deteriorate. And over the course of about five years, he went from having 20-20 vision to literally when I came home one Christmas and I sat at the kitchen table, he looked in my direction and said, who is that? Which meant he couldn't see me at all. And that was a mourning process because, you know, his life was going to be changed forever. But at the same time, he also got a great opportunity to learn new skills because there were so many resources available, things that I had no clue about. And quite honestly, things I should have known about because I used to be a high school special education teacher. So you would think some of the resources that were available for my father would have also been available for my students. But see, the difference between my father and my students was that my father was a retired physician. And so he had access to health insurance that put him in what we call blind school casually and taught him how to acclimate and walk around and figure out how to maneuver without sight. It taught him about JAWS, which is a software that helps you read things on the computer. But my students were in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, and they were poor. And so we didn't have, other than their individual education plan, which often required for more resources, our school just never had the budget to have them for the students. And so people, no matter where they come from, no matter what their racial background is, no matter what their gender is, and whether they are able-bodied or disabled, should not have to determine what their quality of life will be or what their opportunities will be based on the paycheck. But we know in this country, that's pretty much what it comes down to, is how much money you have to give yourself an opportunity. So today, I want you to all think about when you're walking down the street and you take things just like walking for granted, or when you look at a picture of your friend and you take sight for granted, or when you hear your favorite song, maybe the one we drop at the end of this podcast, you take your hearing for granted. I want you to think about the blessings and the privileges that you have, and then I also want you to think about the responsibility and the accountability you have to make sure everyone has access be able to come into our podcast studio to make sure they can go to work, to make sure they can go to school, because that's the America that pod for the cause, and that's the America that I want to live in. I drink a goose for breakfast, an insure for dessert. Somebody order pancakes, I just sip the scissor. That right there could drive a sane man bizzer. Not to worry, Mr. Ace to the Izzles back to wizard. How do you console my mom or give a light support? Telling us Thank you for listening to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on civil and human rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. For more information, please visit civilrights.org. And to connect with me, hit me up on Twitter at Pod for the Cause. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Until then, for Pod for the Cause, I'm Ashley Allison. And remember, a cause is nothing without the people. I really apologize to everyone.
Reconstruct. I feel like six weeks. You know, we had reconstruct. I had reconstruction surgery on my jaw. 